All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Human Centered Security. Today, I have with me Jeremiah Still, who is a, an assistant professor at Old Dominion University. He runs a psychology of design lab, which sounds super interesting. And he focuses on usable security, which is the whole reason why I asked him to be on the podcast. He's going to tell us a little bit about the research that he's done, and hopefully we can learn from that and apply it to some human-centered security research that you might be doing at your organization. So Jeremiah, thank you so much for joining the show. I'm really interested to hear more about your work and experience. Can you tell us how you got into this? Like, you know, why why usable security? Yeah, thank you for the invitation, uh, Heidi. I appreciate it. This is such a cool podcast um, for, our, for our small community. Um, so I've really um, always been drawn to try to understand human cognition. And that's where I really started off my training before I went on, you know, to focus on human computer interaction. So today, and you'll see as we talk about my lab in terms of like psycho design and what we do, we're really about applying um, cognitive theory or human factors theory to the design of things. So specifically, um, because this is a multidisciplinary audience, um, cognitive psychology is a branch within psychology and it studies mental processes related to perceiving, attending, thinking, and memory. And it's really heavily influenced by computer science, uh, which of course we're all grounded in computer science and what we're doing in cybersecurity. You'll hear familiar terms like information processing and memory and so on. So in cybersecurity um, context, I've always been intrigued by it, not only because it's just an important societal issue right now for us um, on many different levels, uh, you know, beyond just economics, um, because we're getting health information stolen, personal identity stolen, and so on. Um, and I want to help with that. But as you'll see in terms of what we do in the lab, it's about applying our understanding of cognition and showing the value of it in design context. So one example, and I think I'll just run with it today because it's very approachable to everybody because cybersecurity is a pretty heavy topic, is that of authentication. We all have to deal with authentication, you know, hundreds of times a day, um, it seems like. Every time you touch your phone or you get onto a network, um, you're being asked to authenticate. So what is that? It's about verifying your identity. And we're asked to do that in usually three different general ways. We could um, ask somebody, um, you know, what they know. So it's kind of like the old secret, like open sesame, right? So some, some knowledge element that you have or something that you hold or have. So thinking about using a cell phone is really common now with the two-factor authentication that we're using um, or something that you are. And so think about a fingerprint uh, retinal scan, something like that, that represents you, can be used to verify that you have le legitimate access to these digital things, right? So I think passwords is, um, and passcodes and so on is a fun um, but challenging uh, design space. And, and it's a nice area to apply kind of cognition and so on. Yeah, it's kind of a foundational thing, right? And it's just, like you said, it's something that we experience not only on a daily basis, but probably 10, 
you know, <laughs> multiple times a day. So it's something that we can all understand and we all understand the frustration of <laughs> medication, right? Uh, because it's not just about, um, it's not just, you know, the, uh, the great use cases when that we take for granted when we're able to get in successfully, but it's all those times where you're unsuccessful or uh, you can't remember your password, right? Like there's a huge amount of, of usability problems inherent with passwords. And yet it's something that we have to deal with on a daily basis. It is. And it's very rich. And it's, it's not necessarily glorious when you think about designing for passwords because people don't want to play with passwords. They don't want to directly engage with it, right? Or authenticate. They just want to get past it. It's essentially just kind of standing in the way, right? And it's necessary. Um, and we see that a lot of vulnerabilities and attacks out there part of what made them successful was somebody using a weak password right not following the rules that are kind of set up and it could be a reflection of you know the poor design of the system right um that that they're interacting with and so to help kind of create motivation for this and we're not the first people to do this but we had a survey that we gave out to kind of understand um authentication and how people are kind of behaving and, and understanding and so on. And so um, part of our survey, and here we were looking at cyber hygiene, which I really won't talk about too much today, um, just thinking about authentication, but Kane Edwards is still in 2018. Uh, we have an extensive survey, and what we found was that 85% of um, our participants, and this was a large cross-section, so we used Mechanical Turk, which is a really neat um, online platform for getting uh, data. So sometimes it's a challenge for user experience folks to, to get a hold of a, a large cross section of the population. Uh, in this case, we're looking at age. So, um, you know, we even had an equal percent of people over 60 in our sample, which is really rare when you're thinking about an academic environment. So we went out and got this big sample. What do we find? Found that- What was the total sample size? Oh, the sample size. Um, uh, I could look it up. I'm not sure. It's, it was a, I want to say it was like 300, okay. not an exact number. This is yeah, just, yeah, yeah. Off, just ballpark off the cuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so in, in terms of like cognitive psych stuff, that's, that's pretty large. Um, usually we're doing like within subject design and stuff and it's like 20 right. people, lots of trials and so on. This is a big sweeping survey here. I really wasn't trying to be diagnostic on anything more of let's get an understanding of what's going on out there, you know? Um, and I think that people are fairly honest and we're seeing this in the lab again and again. I thought maybe people would try to be pleasing me, you know, and, you know, maybe say, oh no, I have super secure passwords. No, we're not people are brutally <laughs> honest, right? <laughs> Which I love because I want them to be, right? We're trying to do science and share all this knowledge and yeah, they're helping us with that. They say that 85% of the sample here said they used personal information when they're creating their password, right? And this is this is an issue, as we know, from a security perspective, because of social engineering. You can go out to these social networks. People don't know how to control their privacy. Again, it's becoming more transparent in industry now. We have lots of options. And this is a very recent development. But still, it's pretty easy to find out who people are friends with, if they have a pet dog, what the dog's name is this kind of stuff, right? So right. we can make pretty good educated guesses here about what if somebody's password might be. Other researchers have shown that when you start to tighten down on this and you don't let people use for password creation, um, personal information, 
that there's a 20% increase um, in them breaking the other rules, like trying to cheat it, right? In terms of not sticking with how we measure it, like in terms of bet strength, which is a calculation saying using the full dimensional space, right? So I have an A, I have a capital A, I have a B, I have a capital B, I have an exclamation mark and so on. And the assumption is with bit space calculations for password strength, which is just like the conventional way of looking at it, um, you know, that we're gonna use this full dimensional space, right? Every person, everybody's gonna be spread out evenly across all these combinations of characters and numbers. And what do we see in the real world? What actually happens? People cluster. They mm -hmm. like to use the password ninja, for example, right? Um, and, or the word love or their favorite football team or band. And again, 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 we see this reduction in this dimensional space. Can I ask a quick question? Yeah. When you, when you were talking about, um, ways in which you would prevent users from using some of the passwords that are something that you could find, like on their Facebook page, how would the system do that? How would it prevent them from doing that? Yeah. Um, so uh, later on, when I when I transition over and talk about graphical authentication, mm -hmm. kind of inherent in the system where it takes care of it. Oh, okay. Okay. But, I thought I was missing like, like some technology breakthrough, and I was like, wait, what? What uh, is it? <laughs> I do think we're getting really good. I, I think that there, um, the cybersecurity people um, are starting to really appreciate on the technical side, the human side. And so, like Carnegie Mellon's done some killer work on this in the Scilab, um, where they actually have constraints in place where they'll you know, say, oh, I'm sorry, you have to fix this. And they might have like a dictionary worth of these popular clusters, right? So mm -hmm. you could rip down from the dark net or publicly or whatever, right? Here is um, the top one, 100 or 500 passwords. Um, or if you're in, in an organization, you could keep track of people's previous passwords and you could run it right um yep. against what they're typing in and give them immediate feedback so we're starting to see that now what's weird about authentication right it's all different depending on the service that you're landing on right there's no real universal way of handling this so it's really tough so when i talk about authentication are we talking about it in a banking or, or de department of defense you know there's good people are going to be really amped up to deal with a lot of um, layers to protect their assets, right? Now, if we're talking about accessing, say, a Spotify account or something like that, maybe people aren't so worried about it, right? They're like, well, if somebody hacks my my service, I'll just have to change it because I'm gonna get denied access myself because somebody else is using it. But, you know, whatever, right? So another kind of struggle here in terms of putting it on the user, they, you know, asking them to think about all the different use cases and how the information could be used in some, you know, in terms of security. So it's, we have a lot of, a lot of things to deal with, deal with this. Well, I, is that, are you, are you saying like, we're, we're almost asking the user to perform like an informal risk assessment and that's putting a lot of burden on them in the sense that you're saying, all right, all right, user, figure out whether it's risky for you to do this, uh, I don't know if that makes sense, but it, it seems like like what you're doing is like you're placing a lot of burden on the user to determine how risky their behavior is, which uh, is uh, might not be the best thing to do. <laughs> yes. 
And this is something that like historically, we love it if the ITS folks took care of it. So if like we had an administrator and they said, we're going to pass down these global rules and it's going to keep everybody safe. Now we're seeing that more and more the individual is being asked to control their privacy and all their settings because only they know what is critical information, right? So, uh, for example, in my role, I have to protect my students' information, right? So when I store something, I have to encrypt it or I have to password protect it. Now, how many faculty members can do this, right? <laughs> Probably very few, like successfully. But we should be, right? Because that's my job role and I know, right? And now we focus a lot of this and a lot of that on uh, our development on like professional uh, end users. But we also have just the consumers, like us in our own personal life when we go home, right? And we are seeing a melding, a melding of services um, and security between work and personal. But that's, I'm working on some papers right now and I'm with a student on this. So more to come on that. So I'm just forming ideas on this. So I, I'm going to- Yeah, no, I love it. I think yeah. I think this is super interesting. And especially the idea of like putting the burden on the user. Like, yeah, we all have great intentions. Like no one wakes up in the morning and is like, I want to be the cause of a security breach today. Like it's just, it's, you know, there, yeah. I mean, obviously some, if there weren't bad actors out there, we, you know, wouldn't be talking about this, but the majority of people are not, have very good intentions, but yet these things happen because we're humans, right? Yes. But, no, and I, and I think we see it in the data again and again and again, this is very predictable. And unfortunately we're in an area where if something is predictable, like not find the rules for passwords, and we know that like, 15% of an organization is not going to comply, like, in, <laughs> like currently not complying. Right. And, and you're trying to, you have an attack vector. You've got 15% of the organization that's like compromised that you can use to get in. And that's not acceptable, you know, where, and a lot of times in human factors and stuff like, oh, well, there's only like 10% error here or 10% of the things are bad are happening. There's 90% success. That's really good. <laughs> And so it's, it is, it is a challenging kind of area. Um, but in terms of getting back to the survey, you want to see that, like, in terms of what we found 50% use the same password for multiple accounts. And I think this is just going to grow and grow as we have more and more online services. 59% um, um, don't change their password, right? Um, when they're asked to do so, if they do so, it's like usually in a very small way. Um, there's a lot of uh, research on that already been sh showing that. And there's 95%, which I was really surprised because this is the, the biggest percent that I've seen in the literature. I've seen 60% um, before, but not 95%. Share their passwords with others. Wow. And so I, I, I'm assuming this is like a trust thing, like, oh, mm -hmm. we share it with your significant other. Because um, why wouldn't you? Um, and maybe a work colleague that you're close with that would need you know, access to the same stuff. Um, and we've, you know, this could be a problem with insider threats and so on. Um, but anyway, whole other discussion. But this is what we're seeing in the survey is that we're really here building motivation for um, the reason behind, you know, why researchers should be invested in understanding how to replace or design out these issues um, in passwords. And for over a decade now, I kid you not, for over 10 years, we've been working in this area um, called graphical authentication. So this is still a, a knowledge-based authentication process, but instead of using alphanumeric characters, we're gonna be using images instead. And images here is very broad, right? We could talk about icons, to basic objects, to faces, to abstract pictures. I mean, there is, there's like 
hundreds of prototypes that have been put out there. Um, and so we usually talk about them in general categories here. And so I'll, I'll come back to that later on in terms of trying to get our mind around all of these different options. And so we see that, you know, um, we need to somehow, like we discussed earlier, prevent people from using their own personal information. Um, but at the cost here is that the individual is going to be frustrated. It's, they know that they need access to this important system, and now they're being asked to make it hard to remember, right? Because it's not something they could easily integrate into a long-term memory, and it's not going to be familiar. It's like the string of numbers and letters, and oh my gosh, I hope I don't forget it, right? And so they, they start to have this anxiety and start thinking about workarounds. Whenever uh, we're talking about this graphical authentication, we could overcome that by having a richness of the object. Um, so there is a benefit with graphical authentication. You hear about right away, it's called picture superiority effect. And so the idea is rather than just coding semantic information, which you get with passwords, you're also allowing them to encode visual information. And by having that visual information there that they're encoding, it makes it easier to retrieve it later on. Yeah, I was reading that in your research and. You know, it, it's like one of those things where you're like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. But then you're like, oh, there's like a term for this, you know, that it's, it's super, Absolutely. super interesting. Absolutely. And that's that's like a whole hour discussion itself. It's like, what are all the nuances here in the picture superiority effect? And um, yeah, so for, for another day, right? Um, but absolutely very, very cool. And that's a great example here of using cognitive psychology to find a solution, right, to this, um, this difficult problem that we're dealing with. It's a very familiar problem. Um, and when we're asking individuals to make unique passwords, it takes a lot of cognitive effort, right, especially when they're underneath a time constraint. Again, people don't care about authentication. They want to get past it. Think about getting those great concert tickets, and they always have a <laughs> countdown ticker, right? 20 yeah. seconds, 15 seconds. You're going to lose your seats. Oh, you don't have an account. Well, we're going to need to register your account, which involves a password, right? And here you're thinking, oh, I might as well just use something I've used before. I know I won't forget it. Well, graphical authentication helps again in this regard because we're giving them some pictures, right? So they don't have to generate their own password. So the key, I think, and the advantage that um, all the research has been shown really for over a decade, again, 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 and we've shown it, and I'll talk a little bit about it today is that we get the biggest benefit for graphical in terms of memorability. And so there's a technical term in the usability world uh, called memorability. So what does this mean? So memorability is just being able to remember something, right? So in a testing environment, we'd often test people when they're in the lab, like maybe we train them on a new authentication uh, you know, scheme. We then assess them on how well they can perform, right? So, oh, well, they could log in. They only made 15% errors. To test the memorability, I have that as a measure. In our studies, we have them come back three weeks later, right? And we say, please log in again. And we again measure the their um, error rates. So say they're at 15%, like it didn't change, right? And that's pretty much what we see um, is that a flat kind of they were here, you know, on day one training, three weeks later they come back, they're still remembering their their passcode. The, the few times I've seen this for, for password recovery, it was like a collection of different colored squares. And you can move around the squares to form your own pattern. So there you can see how you could glance, you could 
um, reproduce that pattern when queued, right? Or prompted for your passcode. So that would be an example. More traditionally, what we see is either like um, spatial or temporally presented. So spatially would be, imagine like a pin-like grid, but rather than having a numbers, you have images. And so um, one of the initial uh, graphical authentication uh, approaches that was really popular was past faces. So they'd actually use human faces. Now these are not people you know, they're just, they're human faces generated by the system. And we know that like from a cognitive perspective, we're kind of, you know, normal brains, you know, put quote normal brains, um, are specialists uh, in this. We have the fusiform face area that um, in particular, right, just lights up and responds well to the faces and we're social creatures and this makes sense. So it's, it's, a, it's a easy for us to remember faces typically. And the system is actually designed pretty well in the sense that it, it guides people through encoding and it says, okay, I'm gonna show you your new passcode, which is a collection of faces. And think about for a moment who each of these people that I'm showing you remind you of. What do you think they would be like, right? And so you're starting to kind of have that story in your mind and you're, you're working them into long-term memory, right? As you're looking at them. Um, other uh, systems, and by the way, that's licensed out there that you, you could add that already. It's already commercially available called pass faces. Um, there are other methods, um, and these methods are, or I should say, also temporarily. So this is one that we, we created, um, RSVP, Rapid Serial Visual Presentation, um, which is a very common term in cognitive psychology. I like the, the, temp, the temporal uh, representation because it's, it's easy to use on a small screen, which, you know, everybody knows now we're like tied to our mobile devices. So mobile devices have small screens. So in this case, rather than having them spatially search for something on like a grid, you have um, a stream of objects. And within that stream, you have your passcode. And I often call these targets, right? So the things that you're looking for amongst distractors. So these are things that are not your passcode, right? But look very similar. So in other words, you're like disguising or camouflaging your uh, passcode. And as these flipped up on the screen, one at a time, very quickly, right? Because we process objects very, very quickly. You, you know, just in milliseconds, we see, oh, that's an apple. Oh, that's a cat, right? That's a snowman, that's a watch. Easy, right? You see it and then you just tap the screen when you see it, that's your passcode. Think about looking at um, your yearbook, right? Cover up the names and try to retrieve the people's names. Just, you know, it's so hard. It's so hard to people remember people's exact names, you know, but if if I gave you a set of names, right, and said, well, who's, who's na is that their name, right? Um, which one of those names belongs to that face? You can do that. So in your long-term memory and retrieval um, aspect, you know, uh, recognition is way easier than recall, always, right? And, and it's something that's more robust as we age and so on. So um, talking about individual differences in your users, right? An, an aged user versus a young user, an aged user is gonna do better with, with, uh, with recognition versus recall. Um, okay, so that's the biggest thing I think. Um, if you're thinking about designing a new system in some way or new a schema, authentication schema, think about using um, recognition versus recall. Um, okay, so what's fun about security is considering the threat model, right? Because not only are we trying to design this thing to be usable, but we're trying to design this to be usable for the person it should be and, and certain aspects of it not being usable, right? So 
if I make a graphical authentication system, oh, it's beautiful. You're using object recognition. It's so easy. It's in milliseconds, and you're retrieving this very quickly, right? Well, guess what? Somebody nearby that's looking over your shoulder can also see your passcode, right? Just as quickly. So here we designed a system. We're like, this is great. They're able to recognize and use it easily. Well, now the attacker can do the same thing, right? So um, that is a big challenge, and that's what usually comes up as a key part of the threat model consideration for graphical authentication is over the shoulder attacks. And so you'll, you'll see, you hear this over and over again. And so in other words, um, it's just having an observer in a public space with you as you're trying to authenticate and they're able to steal your passcode, right? So that's, that's an over the shoulder attack. So in your research, you talked about different examples that you use to resist those types of attacks, the over the shoulder attacks. One of them, I think, was called Convex Hall. Can you talk a little bit about that? So in this case, I'll run through it for you. It's, it's pretty easy to imagine in this. You have like a desktop. You have a bunch of icons on it, right? And three of those icons are your passcode. So you do a visual search. And this takes time. So it takes a little longer, a little more effort to, 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 to do this Convex Hall authentication. You find your three icons on the desktop. Now you mentally connect them. This is where the convex hall is, right? So make a triangle in your mind between those three points. Now you're to click within that boundary, within that triangle. So you're not, you're clicking on decoys. You're not clicking on the actual target or your passcode, right? So very clever, right? Very clever designers. Um, and there's a variety of these out there where you do mental transformations. Or and would the icons be, I'm assuming, in different places every single time you try to authenticate? So the, the triangle would never be in the same place. Yes. And okay. I think that's an interesting difference design-wise, right? So it does make things more robust because uh, to attack, right? Um, but it does require, a, a, it's, it's a variable uh, distractor set so you have to um, systematically search every single time through all of this, right? So it's always going mm -hmm. to take effort. As you know from like uh, Schiffer and Snyder's work and automaticity and so on, if we were to keep the distractors the same and the targets the same, over time you would get faster at this and you, you would become unconscious. But this is always going to require uh, a conscious effort to sort through it. So that's why it takes a little more time. But the security is higher. So this is a trade-off. So maybe, you know, if you're looking at trying to recover things and um, like a password in, in public and it's banking or DOD or something, maybe something like the, the convex hall click would, would make a lot of sense, but maybe a little too heavy in other use cases. Um, so there's, there's, you know, it depends on your, on your, your design situation. So as kind of a final thought here, you did a study on two-factor authentication, and I was hoping you could talk to us a little bit about that. So we did a two-factor um, authentication study, um, and we were just quizzing, you know, surveying people and asking them about uh, what they're doing right now. And this is because we just recently, last year, went to two-factor authentication. So that is, in this case, you have knowledge, you have the password authentication, but you also have to have something, so like your phone. And you're um, encouraged, you know, while you're registering for this, oh, you should, you know, have other devices to back up 
of your two-factor, right? But do people understand this and what are they doing? I'm going to keep it super short. So what we found was only 40% have made more than one device uh, or enrolled more than one device. And um, 40%? That well, sounds like a lot, a lot more than I expected. You know, it's scary to me. I mean, when we see that they're using almost everybody uses their phone and they're using mm -hmm. an app or SMS, um, yeah, 60, I guess, I guess reframing, I should know better. I'm a cognitive psychologist. So 60% <laughs> of people, 60% are not um, registering something else, you know, beyond their phone. And so if you drop your phone in the toilet, or if it becomes unavailable, like the battery dies, you can't charge it, then in my case, I, I can't use my classroom computer to lecture, right? I, mm -hmm. I can't access any, any system on campus without being able to authenticate. So it's, there's a simple solution, and that's, you know, to have something else, a tablet, um, something else that, you know, a thumb drive, something that's registered in addition so that you can easily recover. Um, so we're trying to fix the authentication problem with two-factor authentication, but it is indeed, indeed in the end adding more complexity, right, to, to this uh, problem as well. Um, so anyway, that's my caveat. For those out there, please warn your users uh, when they're registering, uh, maybe with an example, a story. Um, you know, what happens if you lose access, like, you know, you drop your phone and you break the screen or something? Uh, how could you get access? And telling them, you know, which is in the literature out there right now, that it might take a week. Uh, to get access for a few days, right? And that process is not always uh, very clear in how to do that, like regaining access to these services. So um, I think just a little note to your users might help um, to, to stress the importance of this as, as we're layering this in. So what advice do you have for you user experience professionals, researchers, designers? How can we start to put this into practice? And how can we start to think, have this experimental mindset? I think that this is something that's very approachable to UX people, being able to, um, you know, set up an experiment where they look at air rates and efficiency. So how long does it take somebody to do something? Um, what we don't see in the literature a lot of actually um, across all domains is the use of learnability as a measure or memorability. And mm -hmm. I think both of those uh, measures are really important for cybersecurity, right? Um, you see a lot of focus on you know, how many attempts did it take in the login? What were their errors? Um, what was the, you know, lots of focus on the threat model, right? So how well did the attacker do? We have very, very few studies on, um, you know, how long did it take them to learn this? And there's a lot of variability in the literature um, for training, right? So like I talked about earlier in my study, well, they had to become familiar. So we just ran them through, we like introduced them to it and then ran them through a few trials and that was it. Some people, you know, spend 30 minutes training them on one, you know, authentication thing that may be their baby or their prototype. So they really understand it, right? And if we're looking at deploying this in the real world, implementing this, learnability is huge. And I think that's mm -hmm. one of the things that's stifling for any change from a password, right? Because people get it. I mean, they've been using a password. And then if you do something weird, that's a big startup cost in terms of training yeah. phone calls. And you don't have someone sitting next to you being like, all right, I'm going to take you through the training. Like you're relying on the interface to do that. Like that, it's a user experience issue of like helping the user do this. It's the computer helping them, not another human being. So yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right. And anytime you change like the expected 
what users expect the system to do. Like they have their expectation is they're going to have to create a password, mm -hmm. you know, an alphanumeric password. And then if you change things up, A, are they going to trust it? You know, and B, are they going to be able to learn it quickly enough and without the aid of someone else Absolutely. helping them? And that's a great uh, point. That's ingenious because you know what we should be doing, and we don't do this, um, is to focus on the uh, registration as part of – we focus on the interaction, right, and the memory part and so on. And right. So, but we don't focus on registration. So what you're talking about here is that initial setup and training. Right. And we think in the lab, well, you know, we could build this out and have, like, ghosting and examples with the wizard kind of thing. But we'll just have someone sitting there because we don't have to build it. We already have, like, mm -hmm. a, an undergrad can do this, right? But – no, you're right. To be fair, to get closer to the to have the external validity would be to have all of these um, tested in terms of registration as well, right? And the training that would be involved with walking people through this uh, very quickly, right? Um, so yeah, that's that's a really good point. I think that is a good place to end the conversation. But this has been so interesting, and I really, really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me and to my audience. If folks want to get in touch with you, what is the best way for them to do that? Sure. Well, thank you for having me. I enjoyed the chat. Um, if they want to get a hold of me, um, my email is uh, jstill at odu.edu. Um, they could also jump out to my website, it's, uh, psychofdesign.com, and you can uh, download many of the papers there. Uh, if you don't have access, just, just hit me up. Um, Many of them are, are available. I just can't post them in certain ways. So, Awesome. Thanks so much, Jeremiah. Again, this was really insightful, and I really appreciate it. All right, thank you.